Welcome to the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green, and I'm so grateful that you joined us today. Pazi Solberg has worked as a school teacher, teacher educator, researcher, and policymaker in Finland and advised education system leaders around the world. He served as a senior educational specialist at the World Bank lead educational expert at the European Training Foundation, Director General at Finland's Ministry of Education and Culture, and visiting professor of practice at Harvard University. It was wonderful to speak with him and discuss topics such as why sustained educational change is so challenging, how we can give teachers more autonomy to do their jobs, the importance of school systems embracing a collective responsibility for student learning, and if he believes that the COVID-19 pandemic will actually change schools. I hope that you get as much out of this interview as I did. Please enjoy. Pazi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to have a chat to me today. Where are you uh, phoning in from? Uh, yeah, thank you, Matthew. I'm I'm sitting in the um, Kensington, uh, Sydney. This is a critical land, so I, I want to pay my respect to uh, the... Uh, traditional owners of this beautiful land and pay my respect to elders past, present and those emerging. Fantastic. Great. Uh, a couple of rapid uh, fire questions, Pazi. Uh, what is your coffee order? You're an Australian, pretty much an Australian resident now. So uh, I would imagine that you uh, would be pretty into your coffee. What's your coffee order? Yeah, I still order as I used to when I lived in Italy to just uh, ask for espresso. I guess you say short black here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you uh, do you enjoy the coffee culture in Australia? Or is it is it different to? No, I do actually. The that, that's one of the one of the strong parts here. It's much much better than the uh, education policy framework here. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, what is on your uh, bucket list that you're still yet to do? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, I would probably say uh, I, I haven't been in Uluru. So that's okay. one of those places where my wife and myself, uh, and we, we want to take our kids there. So I say um, Uluru in, in, near Alice Springs. Yeah, fantastic. I would love to do that as well. It seems like such a, such a magical place. Um, if you could have a dinner party with five guests, who would be there? It can be dead or alive. <laughs> dead or alive. Ooh. Let me, can, can I choose the, the, those who are still with us? Of course, of course. Yeah. That's probably more practical. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely would like to um, like to have a kind of a mixed group of people. I, I would like to have uh, Greta Thunberg, uh, the Swedish uh, Swedish girl who is leading the uh, climate change movement. Yeah. I would love to sit down with uh, Ed Snowden. Fantastic. I know that it's uh, physically possible, but <laughs> that would be a nice uh, thing. Uh, Barack Obama would be a wonderful guest to to you know listen to. Um, uh, his experience as, as a leader of the, the United States before all this mess happened there. Um, I definitely would like to sit next to Bruce Springsteen. Um, I've been reading, I've been reading several times. He's uh, born to run uh, uh, kind of a memoir, and I saw him actually in um, in, in um, Broadway in New York a couple of years ago when he was doing this theater show. So that would be definitely one. And then I think. From Finland, I would like to have our young new prime minister, um, Sanna Marin, uh, who is uh, much appreciated by many, but also criticized by some. So uh, I think that this this group of five would make a, a wonderful conversation. Fantastic! Sounds like a uh, sounds like an incredible dinner party. Um, 
Uh, Pazi, what is your favorite book uh, that is non-educationally uh, related? Uh, you know, I, I, I probably, if I have to choose one book, I would take uh, 100 Years of Solitude. I don't know if you know that. It's uh, written Fantastic. by Colombian, um, already um, uh, past uh, author called uh, Garcia Mar Marquez. Um, yes. And he, he won the Nobel Prize, Literature Prize uh, in 1983 or something like this. This is really a book I'm picking it up because it, it really changed. It changed my life, really. It changed, changed oh. the way I think about storytelling and reality and many other things. And that's, uh, that's certainly one of those books that I, I would never want to let go. <laughs> Fantastic. My, oh, sorry. I, just some of the, sorry, a bit of an issue with the audio then, passing. My apologies. Um, I'm not sure what that clicking sound is. Sorry, um, I'll make sure I edit that bit out. Um, look, uh, Parsi, that's that's pretty exciting. My wife is a uh, is an avid reader, and that's one of her favorite books as well. All right. Uh, so, have you revisited that book a number of times? And does it carry? Yeah, yeah. I've, I, you know, I've read everything he wrote, so all the books, uh, probably about fifteen novels and and okay. short stories, and um, it's just amazing. I mean, you learn so much about writing and storytelling yeah. just by reading somebody like him. So, yes, yes. so he's amazing, amazing. Absolutely. Guy. Absolutely. Well, um, Pazi, if you wouldn't mind taking us back to the beginning, how how did you start in education and what um, how did this fascination or this um, uh, this passion for driving educational change start with you? Because it seems like it's uh, been a very long and, and varied and very exciting career. So, so where did it all start? Yeah, you know, I was um, I've I've always been a teacher, and um, I was actually born in a family of teachers. So all my I, I don't know any other form of life than <laughs> what it is to be a teacher or or taken care of by um, by parents who were who were teachers, and and probably that, that was the thing that was driving me into teaching. But I, I remember that when I was uh, it's probably high school, uh, I was interested in you know, all kinds of other things, but not so much about school. You know, music was my big thing, sports. I was doing a lot of uh, different types of sports. Um, uh, I was writing, um, I was really interested in cinema. But, you know, I, I remember that I was thinking when I was in, in um, probably about 16, 17, 17 in high school and surrounded by all these other things that were so kind of a, um, important for me that, you know, why the school is not doing things that would be equally important, kind of interesting wow. for me. <laughs> why, wow. why I'm not in, kind of inspired by these uh, things, like foreign languages, for example, that I, I really regret now afterwards, that my school, like all the schools in Finland, were offering all kinds of, uh, you know, foreign languages, but I just, you know, they didn't interest me at all. And, and, and at some point I kind of woke up and I said that, you know, there must be a better way to teach. Um, you know, I loved some of my teachers and some of them I, I didn't, uh, kind of held in too high high esteem at all um, and I, you know I started to think that you know the uh, you know you, you must be able to find a way to teach uh, these things in a int more interesting way or design the school that would be more kind of a uh, open to different types of young people and that's yeah. that's where this kind of flame started to oh. to drive me to to teacher education being a teacher and then working in the in the system so 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 like with many many other people that I was initially I was interested in you know how to change my own way of teaching mathematics i was a math and scientist so uh, science teacher for many years how can i teach mathematics in an interesting way so everybody would be uh, on board with that and then i started to think about the school you know how can we change the school 
and I was in uh, back home in Finland, and then the, this question of the whole system came to mind. You know, uh, if we can if we can change the school, does it mean that we can also turn around the system? So it's it's been a kind of an evolutionary thing in my life. Yeah, fantastic. And um, for those that are not familiar, obviously, as the former director general uh, in Finland's Ministry of Education, that's quite a quite a big role. Um, I think that I have a busy day as a classroom teacher, but it uh, seems uh, like quite a uh, quite an immense role. And and did you start to um, see sort of a look at the broader structural changes within the Finnish education system or the system that you're involved in? Did you begin to think that there was much more that we could be done from a structural level? Is that why you kind of decided to go down that that track it seems like an incredible opportunity yeah yeah but you know most of these things i've done in my life are just a coincidences like lucky lucky fortunate accidents i i, I could say i've never really applied to um like deliberately to any particular position there's always been by invitation or an opportunity and uh, you know the fact that i was able to you know join my colleagues then this was in the early late 1980s i was a young teacher then at school and an early 1990s to look at the system level things we were you know finland was going through a kind of a fundamental change economically yeah. and socially and culturally in many ways because of the you know the, so the soviet union collapsed and we were just kind of in the entry to european uh, full member of european union and many other things you know the the old economy uh, was going away um, and Nokia and high tech and those so there a lot of things happening there and people realize that we need a different type of education system so when you know where when I left school teaching and went to work with the system this was the kind of environment uh, uh, and it's it's a, it's a, it's not really like like what we have have in Australia right now this was you know Finland was a country that was kind of in the middle of <laughs> you know this this these questions of are, are we going to be successful in the future what what are we going to be uh, or will we kind of uh, be lagged behind by everybody else and so there's a huge drive for you know transforming education education system in a way that would produce a different types of outcomes and results and people who are able to live and work in this uh, new environments uh, that demanded so so many different things so it was really inspiring time to <laughs> you know work in in this system nobody knew that time you know how, how these whole systems change we had yeah. a we have a kind of an understanding how to change one school or five schools or kind of a clusters of school that that's not a rocket ro rocket science we know very well how to do that but nobody had nobody knew how to change the whole system and and you know i entered in that work in that particular time and kind of a mindset that we need to figure out how to do that Parsi, it's 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 so fascinating, and I think um, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of the context with uh, your your role in Finland. I mean, I'm really interested in what some of the mindsets were like that you came up against, um, because I guess there's the assumption that things have always been and should always remain the same. But you must have been asking some really fundamental questions at both the school level and also the policy level. Um, so would you mind maybe spending just a few moments unpacking uh, some of those challenges that you came up against? And also, I mean, how do you, changing a school is hard, let alone uh, transforming transforming a system. Um, yeah. Yeah, they, you, you know, everything everything probably goes back uh, initially to the question of what is the purpose of schooling? You know, what, what, what are we trying to do? Uh, or what should we be able to kind of accomplish uh, with, with the school system? But, uh, you know, one thing that we 
we did in, a, and this was in the late, late 1980s, I was, I was teaching, teaching in the school then. And that was, for me, it was a really important thing to be in a classroom and work with the students and at the same time work with this kind of a emerging government transformation that we were seeing. And one of the things I remember that we started to work fairly kind of a seriously that not many people believed in at all. And it was widely questioned as a, as a thing that should not be part of the education transformation at all. And this was fundamental questions like, what is knowledge? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, if you, you're a teacher yourself, you know, if you take this to your school um, and, you know, have a conversation with the colleagues, it very quickly leads to very kind of a deep philosophical questions about, you know, what, what are we actually talking about? And then, of course, the follow-up question was that, what is learning, how learning happens? And, and now those who are listening to this, you need to, you, need to, you know, put these questions in the a, in a right context, because in the late 1980s, early 1990s, the science of uh, of learning, the learning sciences were actually going through a kind of a paradigm change. And, and so we were leaving behind this behavioral view of learning as something that would be would be understood by looking at students or individuals' visible behaviors into a kind of a much more a cognitive view of learning where we cannot really see what's happening in our, our, our minds. So we were asking, you know, these uh, these questions like, what is knowledge? What is knowledge? Uh, what is uh, uh, you know, how learning happens? And then the follow-up question is that, what, what should the teaching look like or, or the school look like? So we, we spent many years uh, working with these uh, these questions. So we, we actually took them to to the, the level of the system, to the all, all the schools in Finland. So we invited all the teachers. Fantastic. To have this conversation, you, you can just imagine, you know, what what, what the change. Uh, looks like when you when you have teachers coming together and you know having these conversations about these fundamental questions. And now I I know that there are many Australian listeners, t- teachers who say, oh yeah, you know this is a wonderful thing if you have a luxury to, you know, have time to have a cup of coffee and have these conversations in a school. That in Finland you have to remember that in Finland still, and, and definitely that time, uh, had much less hours to teach and duties during the school day than the teachers in Australia have today. Uh, I, I fully accept if you tell me that, yeah, but we cannot do those things because, you know, school days are already uh, longer. We heard yesterday in the in the conference that in, in New South Wales, the average uh, public school teachers working week is 50, 55 hours a week. So you cannot, you cannot add anything more on that. But, you know, that time in Finnish schools and still there is time to teachers to sit down and have this fundamental philosophical, pedagogical and educational conversations. And you know what? I would still do the same. You know, if people ask me that if you if you if you were to um, kind of try to change the whole system, like whether it's here in New South Wales or anywhere else, this is exactly what I would do, not necessarily in the same way, but I would find a way to make sure that all the teachers would have um, both an opportunity, but also obligation to th- to think about these fundamental questions, what, it, what is knowledge, how kids learn, what does it mean for teaching and our school? And that's where the change starts. Fantastic. How important, Pazi, do you think it is to, to challenge those assumptions around education um, and not just to, um, like I said before, take for granted that this is the way we've always done it, so we should continue to do it? Um, how important is it to really to really in many ways push against those assumptions that um, I know in many schools are actually quite deeply ingrained. Yeah, it's absolutely critically important. And, and, and Matthew, they, they are not just the, 
they are not just simply assumption. You know, what we, what we are talking about here are deeply rooted cultural beliefs that people have. Yeah. And, you, you know, I, I did my own uh, doctoral work many years ago, um, uh, you know, that time about these, the power of these beliefs that are much more than assumption. You know, assumption is something that you kind of, assume, let's assume that something is as it is. But belief is often something that you have built yourself. That yeah. the, the belief is something that you have experienced and, and you have kind of learned to understand certain things. For example, teaching in a way that, you know, that time there were many teachers, most teachers in Finland thought that, you know, best, best way to teach kids is to tell them the facts, you know, stand in, in front of the classroom and just tell what they need to learn. And, and there was nothing wrong with this. But, you know, that was, and that was not just an assumption. It was a belief that teachers had that this is how things should go. And so that's why, you know, chasing assumptions is easy because we can just assume different things, but chasing beliefs is much, much harder. And that's why, you know, no law or no new policy or curriculum or, or legislation can change these beliefs. The beliefs can, teachers only change their beliefs through these conversations that they have with one another in school. And that's why, that's why it's so critically important that here in Australia also, that the teachers would have more time for these informal conversa professional conversations in the schools, where they could kind of politely challenge one another's beliefs, not just assumptions about knowledge, uh, how kids learn, you know, what is important, what is the future like. And that's why, that's why it's so important that we, um, we, we kind of think about improving teachers and, and the teaching profession also through these um, informal professional conversations that are yeah. critically important. Yeah, absolutely. Pazi, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I, I think it's so crucially important. And one of the things that was so transformative for me uh, in my career and really made me put a lens up to my own practice was um, I had the privilege of uh, doing a, a course with Professor John Hattie um, at the University of Melbourne. And I was slightly intimidated, uh, but um, just because of the volume and the body of his work. And it was so wonderful to actually get to look at your own practice through um, a professional lens and look at things like effect sizes. And, and a lot of the things that I thought were the most important things, such as having a wonderfully um, uh, well-designed classroom and organized workspace, while they are crucially important, they're not the things that necessarily have the biggest impact on students. That's the role of the teacher. And so right, right. I think it was really, um, for me, it was so important to challenge those assumptions. And have you ever, um, I would imagine respectfully, that's maybe not always put you on the most popular uh, side of professionals if you are actually really getting to the, the root of some of those uh, assumptions and actually confronting people with evidence and say, look, you're potentially wrong about this. Let's have a conversation. How do you even navigate those discussions? Yeah, I, I wouldn't probably, I, I wouldn't probably tell anybody that you're wrong. No, <laughs> because it doesn't. You know, <laughs> so if you tell, if you tell, if you now yeah. tell me that I'm wrong with something, what I do is that I start to defend myself. Yes, um, and this happens particularly if you if you're dealing with somebody who has more authority or more experience than you have. Yeah. And, and that's that's why I think it's not a very smart way to say that you're wrong and, you know, this is how you need to think, because who knows that my way of thinking about these things is correct. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I admit, admit that openly that, you, you know, how I see, how I understand knowledge or learning or, you know, what school should be, that's just kind of a my, they're my, based on my beliefs and knowledge and experience. Yeah. But, you know, what I would do is exactly what I said earlier, that, uh, you know, let's have a conversation about this and let, let, let's kind of investigate a little bit 
uh, you know, how we think about these things. And, you know, rather than saying that somebody, somebody is wrong, I, I would like to help. And this is what I did for basically 10 years in, um, earlier in my life. I, I tried to help teachers to see, understand their own thinking about these fundamental tools of their, their own profession, like knowledge and learning and other things. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a little bit like, um, it's a, it's a little bit like a counselor or, or psychologist <laughs> that yeah. you know if you have a problem i'm going to tell you that uh, you you know this is your problem let's let's solve it yeah. i need to help you to understand you know what what you know how you think about these things and that is you know if teachers are trained to be teachers uh, they 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 probably understand these issues much easier than those who are not yeah. and that's that's why i think the 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 good way to to try to you know change these beliefs or help people to realize how they think is to to enter in this this kind of a route that is trying to trying to make sure that teachers are kind of a comfortable and safe enough to ask these questions from themselves first yeah. um, rather than you know somebody else walking into the lecture hall or yes uh, or workshop and say that let me let me tell you how things how the yeah. reality really is that that, that doesn't lead anywhere but, but it, you know my experience is that teachers are very very good and open to these types of things we just need to have a educational and pedagogical approach how to do that yeah i love that idea of coming together and having a discussion about the best practice as opposed to mandating what needs to be done yeah that's the most effective way of uh, you know changing sustainably change things in school yeah yeah Fantastic. Um, just wanted to ask you a quick question about a gentleman called Ronald Edmonds. Uh, my understanding is that uh, he is, has had a significant um, impact in your life. Um, mm -hmm. Why is he such an important figure and, and what do you think we can learn from, uh, from this gentleman? Yeah, well, very few people actually know uh, Ron Edmonds. Uh, he, was, um, um, he was one of the first African-American uh, educational uh, leaders and authorities he was he was working a little bit with the um uh, in the school administration in the u.s and and did his education master's degree uh, at harvard university where I, I also spent as a as a teacher for and professor for for three years but you know he he was the he was the guy who was doing a lot of work in um in a very disadvantaged uh, parts of the united states and particularly the urban uh, um, urban uh, poor people um and you know his work was taking place at the time when there was a kind of a strong um strong view in america and in the world that you know if you're poor uh if you're disadvantaged you have no hope in school the school kind of changed the <laughs> you, you you know your life course so in, in in other words the kind of a message message was yeah. that you know you don't you don't even Need to try because your chances of getting something out of the school through the school is is minimal but he you know he was uh he was changing this view uh, through his research and, and work. And, uh, uh, and that's why I, th I think, you know, he's also often considered as one of the founders of this uh, school effectiveness or effective schools movement that is, was trying to challenge the, the 1960s, uh, the Coleman report finding that was basically saying that the schools don't, don't matter. So he brought this new kind of a narrative into the, education policy and, and school improvement as well is that, you know, the schools can change the lives, life courses of uh, young people if the certain conditions are there. In other words, you know, he, 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 he was also one of the founders of this equity thinking that we are doing now, yeah. that he was emphasizing the fact that, you know, if you, if we are still, if we are, if we are trying to teach the, 
the urban poor in uh, Americans' uh, large city suburbs. Uh, they just don't need educa good, good education. They also need a kind of a care and social support and help and, and many other things outside of the school. Mm. And that's why I think, you know, he's a significant uh, person and figure in also in, in a way that he was an academic uh, and he was doing research and writing and publishing stuff, but also working in a, in a practice. And, uh, and, and uh, so he, he has been paving the way for many other people to kind of believe that schools can change the, the lives of children if we just think about schooling in a little bit different way. Fantastic. Sounds like he made lots of wonderful contributions to education. I can't wait. I'd never heard of him, I must be honest, until uh, listening to an interview that you did. And I'm very excited to uh, to dig deeper, more deeply into his work. He sounds a fascinating individual. Yeah, and I, I think, uh, Matthew, it's, it's also, you know, the school, school reform literature is very much dominated by uh, white Caucasian males, often in their kind of a late part of their careers. Uh, they're much less females and uh, and certainly um, African-American uh, people of color are not so much represented there. So it's, I, I think it's also good to, to remember that there are there is a certain diversity in this literature and, and research background and recognize those people who have been doing important work before us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always fascinated by the by the many heroes in education that maybe uh, whose names are not as well known or as people that are working tirelessly behind the scenes or that have um, uh, rose to the top of incredible inequality to make a difference for their students. And it's always so fascinating to see how all of these different pieces and individuals fit together. So thank you for introducing me to his work. Sure. Um, another person that comes up quite often um, in your discussions and interviews is a gentleman called Bruce Joyce. And I just wondering, um, one of uh, the pieces of work that he did, it was called Student Achievement Through Staff Development. And you mentioned that it's a really important read for teachers and also that it has some quite significant implications for how we train teachers. Uh, would you mind spending a few moments unpacking why he's such a significant figure and why we all should start Googling uh, Mr. Joyce? Yeah, you know, Bruce, uh, Bruce, Bruce is a good old friend of mine. We met first time in, uh, uh, I'm still teaching in a school in the late, late, 1980s, early 1990s, and he's a very charismatic uh, trainer, excellent uh, teacher trainer, works very nicely with the with the students. Um, and you, you you know what he what he realized uh, through research, his own research and, and research of many others, is that um, that that the the impact of professional develop what it, what we call the professional development. Um, he was, he was at that time it was called staff development. That is a, basically the same thing that very rarely has any, any impact on students uh, learning in school. Like there's a lot of money and time spent on uh, professional learning and development uh, around the world and very little impact in ac actual students, uh, student outcomes. So he started to work on that. And in this book and in his later work, he realized that there was a one important piece missing. And we call, Matthew, we come back to the same thing that we spoke earlier about the importance of informal time for teachers during the school day to spend, you know, hang around with one another, observe one another's classes and, you know, help help others to teach. And this is this was a Bruce, uh, Bruce's uh, um, kind of a finding that is so nicely um, explained in this 1988 book that you mentioned that, you know, unless uh, the, the, the workshops and lectures and seminars and even, even a kind of a practice 
in the workshops uh, that we give teachers often uh, about new teaching methods, for example, in most cases, almost always uh, fall short of um, uh, impact in a student's learning, unless this yeah. missing piece is there. And the missing piece is what, the, what he called and what is called afterwards uh, peer coaching, meaning that the, the um, peers, in other words, teachers in the same school or why not in a different schools are coaching one another, you know, just like a athlete coach is coaching the, uh, the athlete to, you know, improve a little bit, you know, find a, a, a different position to do the performance, whatever they're doing exactly the same way that when there's somebody helping you to teach in a different way, somebody's giving you feedback about, uh, you know, how you can get more out of these things that that's when the, the, um, when the impact is really becoming uh, more mm -hmm. visible. I know that John Hattie has been talking about this, the, the, uh, the feedback as one of the most significant uh, factors in effective teaching and effective schools. But this was actually what the Bruce Choice already uh, 35 years ago uh, realized. And, and, and through this work said that we, you know, unless we have this peer coaching, this peer-to-peer -peer, um, element in as part of the professional learning, uh, very little will will be visible in the end of the day, and that's why, you know, we we can still we can still see a lot of uh, practices related to staff development or professional learning here in Australia and everywhere without this element. And I, I just wonder that you know why we are not doing something that was already figured out long time ago that we need to do um, to make make sure that these you know these millions of dollars or uh, or hundreds of hours that we spent on professional learning would give more positive outcomes in the end. Absolutely. Um, Pazi, it would be um, a miss of me, um, sorry if I'm jumping all over the place, but it would be a miss of me not to ask the questions about um, how we actually measure, um, how we assess and how we measure school improvement. I don't know that Finland is, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but is um, uh, recognized for, um, for not using standardized assessment um, and also, um, they have a very different approach to assessment. So how on earth do we know if we're being successful um, as teachers? How do we know if we're improving school systems? And, and, and how do we know what to measure? I know that's a huge three-part question, uh, but um, uh, what are your thoughts on that? How do we even know if we're being successful? Well... It's a very long question. Right? Yeah, you, you, but you know what? I want to correct a little bit what you, what you said about Finland, uh, because we have, there's actually a lot of testing going on, but it's a very different type of yeah. standardized testing. It's not something that would have a kind of a central role in the system like NAPLAN has here, yes. or national assessments in other countries. Uh, you know, all, the, all these assessments in Finland are done in a way that I think we should be doing here in Australia is through sample-based assessments. Yeah. But, you know, this is something, it's a, it's a no stake, a very low stake uh, tests doesn't have any consequences to the teachers or the schools or anybody. It's a, uh, it's used for the purposes of exactly as, you know, answering these questions that you ask, you know, how the system is doing, you know, are we getting any better in, you know, whatever we, we want, what we want to measure. But then the, the other thing uh, I would like to give an kind of a short answer to your question, which is a good question um, uh, really is that you, if, if you really want to know how the kids are doing in the school, what they are learning, then the first thing we should be doing is to ask the teacher. Yeah. And, and you know, this is something that is still ignored in most countries. And, and it means that it kind of indicates that we are not really trusting the teacher's understanding and judgment of 
uh, of the children's learning. I have two boys here in a public school um, and I trust much more my boys, teachers, words about how they're doing in a school than any external assessment. You know, I just, I, I just don't, I have no reliance, kind of a trust in the, in the NAPLAN that I'm not even interested in seeing that because it's a, it doesn't mean anything to me. What means everything to me at the, the, at the early years of primary school is what the teacher is telling me. Yeah. And that, that's why if we really want to know, you know, whether kids are learning or whether they're kind of a progress in school and even you know how the schools are doing we have to ask more often than we do now the teachers teachers alone like i was explaining you but also teachers collectively and and this is something that i think less schools here in australia are, are doing this that every school in finland has to do that they they have they have to collectively kind of create an an idea and explain you know how the school is performing compared to you know last year or or, or uh, you know compared to the standards or expectations that they have so they have the teachers really have to sit down and and answer these questions how we're we doing and then you, you know you can you cannot do that of course without any data or anything just to kind of a, I, I think that you know we are doing better that you have to justify those things but you know all these type of assessment work that you can that's taking place all the time in Finnish schools you don't see those things because they are not they are not kind of a in a, in a mainstream work of the school. So, so we, we need to trust much more teachers' judgment and, and believe what they say. It's just, just like we rely on uh, our GPs' word, words about you know, our health uh, and then do much smarter uh, system-level assessments yeah. based on sampling and then use that data for the kind of a system-level monitoring and policies and improvement work. And, and that that should be the the direction here in Australia as well, I think. Yep, absolutely. And I, I think you, you raise a number of interesting points, and um, uh, specifically, I think around how uh, teachers are even recruited in Finland and the whole process of um, uh, maybe how much more esteemed the profession is over in Finland than maybe it is in other parts of the world. I could be speaking out of turn there, um, but also the importance of treating teachers as professionals and giving them that professional autonomy to be able to make those decisions. I think yeah, it- yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, you know, you often we often hear these uh, comparisons saying that teachers should be should be treated or should be compared to uh, other high professionals like medical doctors and, and lawyers. Um, and, you know, here and in many most other countries, we are far away from that type of uh, situation. But in Finland, we actually have the same, same uh, kind of a way of treating these professionals, uh, like, like you know, the lawyers in in America. Before you can be a lawyer, you have to you have to do the bar exam. So you have to show that, and it's probably same here in, in Australia that you have to, you have yeah. to pass the exam to call yourself a lawyer. And it's the same thing in the in a medical uh, medical practice that there's a very high standard of you know, getting people in and graduating them so not not anybody can be a med- medical doctor for sure and in you know in finland we we treat the primary school teachers and even early childhood teachers now exactly the same way uh, that that it's not for everyone uh, and yeah. you know even if you are able to get in to be able to graduate so that you get you can you can call yourself a teacher primary school teacher or teacher in general you really have to you know you have to pass the test and it's, it's a rigorous way of doing, you know, I was, I was a teacher trainer for many years in Finland and every, uh, every now and then it happened that, you know, there was a student who we realized at the university, we, we thought that, you know, this 
it's, it's not going to be good to, to allow this person to teach kids <laughs> that yeah. he, he or she must be, uh, he, he's be uh, he or she is better in some other profession. And yeah. we, we didn't, you know, it's just, just um, yeah. guided these persons uh, somewhere else. And this is exactly how it should be. But just, you know, just a look at teacher training. Yeah. Unfortunately, in many parts of Australia here and many other countries, anybody can get in. If you cannot get anywhere else in a higher education, there's always a way to become a teacher. And then, you know, that's why that's why we have this unnecessary problem here in Australia to, you know, think about who are good teachers and who are bad teachers and, you know, um, uh, should we pay teachers, good teachers more and, and others uh, less because there are so many different types of people working into schools. With the diploma saying that you know i'm a qualified teacher and i think that in a play in a country like this that we we should have much more kind of a rigorous selection into the teaching but but also much higher kind of academic expectations um to graduate yeah. to make yeah. sure that you know people everybody who gets the gets the uh, the title of being a teacher that they would be uh, held to the same uh, same uh, high standards Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more, Pazi. And I, um, as I shared with you before we hit record, I have, have two little girls, a one-year-old and a, a three-year-old. And I've obviously always seen the value and the significance of education. But I think for me, and I don't want to sound like one of those parents, but as soon as I had my kids, it, it became a lot more personal, I think. Um, and so I see the incredible work that their early childhood teachers do. I, I think I I am so much more in awe of the teaching profession now. I, I think after having children and exposing them to it, I think is is super important. You mentioned as well you have uh, two two young sons. Yeah, and you uh, obviously are sending them off every day to that system. And I think it, it's these are so uh, such significant questions I think to ask. And um, I think it's so wonderful to see that there is in Finland a vetting process, if you like, of people that it's just not cut out for. And we don't seem to have those discussions in Australia. And so I think it's a really important discussion to have yeah 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 yeah, yeah. um uh, Pazi, you're obviously over at the university of new south wales uh working for the gonski uh working with the gonski institute uh what what's your role um in that can you maybe spend a few moments unpacking uh what some of the aims of the gonski institute are and also what's your role within that because it sounds absolutely fascinating <laughs> yeah the gonski institute was established about two two and a half years ago maybe three years ago um, in the, the University of New South Wales, and uh, uh, they invited uh, former uh, Minister Adrian Piccoli to lead and, and yeah. create that, that institute. And Adrian basically called me and said <clears throat> that they have a they have a job opening that would you like to join the team? And I'm always interested in kind of a new new ideas, but I, I ultimately I decided to come here with my family and um, and, and children because of this mission of the Konski Institute that is uh, uh, basically we we are using two words to express, explain what we do and it's the fixing, fixing inequities or inequalities here. Yeah. So that's that's basically what the, the Institute has been established to do. And my role there is to, um, uh, I'm a professor of education policy at the university. So I do what the university professors normally do. I do mostly research related to equity. Um, I teach and supervise students um, as part of this thing. And then re related to this Konski Institute thing, I spend a lot of time doing kind of advocacy work in the communities and yeah. around the country, really, uh, I visit a lot of schools and meet a lot of parents and kids and, and teachers just yeah. to try to kind of uh, 
help people to understand better and more broadly this idea of equity and inequalities here in, in, in Australia and and then you know try ho hope that this uh, better understanding of why this uh, equity and inequity are so important things here is to have more people to talk about it and do something about it. Fantastic. And my understanding as well is that you are speaking at the Opera House um, and that's coming up uh, relatively soon with uh, Eddie Wu, I think. Yes, we have a fascinating individual. Eddie is yeah, I know, I know. very interesting, very quirky, very interesting guy. Yeah, we have a, I'm, I'm leading a, a series of three uh, kind of essential conversations uh, at the Sydney Opera House. The first one is about the beauty of mathematics. Um, um, and then the next one in May will be about the indigenous uh, ed education here in Australia, what to do with that. Fantastic. And then the, the last one in um, later this year is, is about growing up digital. is how the, how the digital media and technologies are shaping and changing, and affecting our young people. I, uh, I just recently got tickets for that and I had to persuade my wife to uh, have the evening looking after our wonderful children. So I think um, it'll probably, not only the cost of the ticket, I think I may have to uh, take her out for a nice meal to uh, for her to recover. Please, please, yeah. <laughs> please do that. <laughs> Look, um, Pazi, just a couple more questions. I, I want to be respectful of your time um, as well. Um, just a couple of recent articles that you've written or been involved in that I'd love just to briefly touch on. Um, in a recent article, Will the Pandemic Change Schools? Um, you talk a lot about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I just wanted you, I uh, just wondering if you could maybe highlight uh, some of the issues that maybe that has either exposed um, with the Australian school system or the or education more globally. And also uh, what, um, what indications that have given us for, for how to move forward with this? Because it's been like something we never expected, um, but, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, you, everybody will probably remember because this pandemic um, came fairly recently. It's about a, it's less than one year ago when we began to understand what is most likely to gonna happen. But very quickly, you know, the thing that happened was that there was a lot of um, a lot of writings and podcasts and and articles about the need to reimagine learning and redesign schools and you know change everything and and many people saw that this pandemic is this kind of a, a perfect storm now to uh, you know wipe away all the old things and then rebuild um, rebuild a new school and so so um, I have been writing about that uh, quite quite a lot actually and many others just asking that you know is this pandemic going to change the schools or are we just going to return back to the old normal? Um, and you know, my my point in this article is that uh, you know I don't see, I don't think that first of all I don't think that this pandemic alone will, or any external shock will uh, help, will change the schools eventually, yeah. unless unless we learn to think a little bit differently about yeah. the process of how this change happens. And that's why in in this article I argue that you know if we if we continue to trust and rely on central policies and direct directives that the governments and the departments will kind of send down to the schools and teachers yeah. and classrooms and that say yeah. that you know this is what we need to do the change is not going to be yeah. uh, visible yeah. um, and and that you know the alternative thing that could happen and I, I hope that this pandemic would help 
us to see more is to rely more on these these wonderful teachers and principals and schools that we have so many here in Australia in all parts you know I've been in every single state and territory here I've seen hundreds of schools and thousands of wonderful committed enthusiastic teachers um, and you know my hope is and that's what I write in this article my, my kind of a hope is in these these powerful um, individuals and schools and, and clusters of and networks of schools um, and if we just could, if this pandemic would help us to understand that, you know, the, the, the change should come equally uh, as much driven by these, these powerful change yeah. makers than the, the policies and reforms, then yeah. there would be, uh, would be a hope. But yeah. as I said, I don't see, I don't see that much signs, uh, certainly here in Australia about that. Yeah, I mean, because obviously in the article you write about the bold and brave brave shifts that need to happen in terms of mindset and I thought that was such a such a fascinating point that the 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 innovation in many ways the uh, revolution in education that needs to happen will come from those that are actually working within the system and um, from those that are actually um, are, are teaching the students and I thought that was so wonderful and so empowering and uh, yeah thank you so much for um, uh, for writing that article I hope that I'll actually put links to all of that um, in the bottom of the uh, sorry in the show notes um, but a really for those that are listening a really really powerful article um, I've I don't have my one in front of me but the one that I was reading was covered in highlighters and post-it notes and and actually when I read it I felt something I felt really empowered as an educator to be the one that's actually going to help make those changes. I mean, we don't need to wait for external things. We can actually do it ourselves. So thank you so much for taking the time to write that, Palsy. And just a couple more, uh, a couple of quick uh, questions. You uh, recently mentioned that, um, sorry, you just mentioned that in the Opera House, you're talking in your third talk about growing up digital. Um, So I would uh, encourage um, people to purchase tickets to that. Um, But you also talk a little bit about the, the importance of uh, empathy and well-being in relation to technology use and why uh, do you think these are so important things for us to consider uh, with our, with this kind of newfound data that we've we've recently had recently come in you, you know empathy and well-being uh, among all of us but particularly young people are important because both of them uh, have been significantly in decline during the you know basically during the time when the technology has been yeah. available for for everyone and of course yeah. you know I, I know that there are people who say that but you cannot you cannot establish a causal link between you know people spending more time with the technology and declining empathy and well-being i know that <laughs> but yes <laughs> I, I, st- I still do believe that you know you know there, there are a lot of studies coming out now in the united states and around the world really that is 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 showing us uh, the decline you know decline not only these two two things but but you know many many other things and, and that's why I think it's important to, um, you know, focus more on this, what we call in our research, we call it the digital wellness. Uh, that yes. is, um, it's a more positive, it's a more positive idea than just, you know, try to argue that we need to put the technologies away or we have to, uh, we have to ban them in schools or restrict children to, you know, not spending hours and hours every day. Um, with, with the um, with the media technology, so you know the education is the, the huge power that we have in in order to address more the empathy and and well being thing, and there are some some other things, um, and yeah. and you know that's why that's why I think we are now at the kind of a tipping point of um, of this issue that what is you know how how this 
wonderful thing that technology has brought us is going to shape our lives and and what is it going to do for us yeah. and you know if we if we can use if we can use education in schools and parenting uh, you are parent and i am as well in a kind of a smart way to um you know make sure that the the kids will learn to you, you learn to use responsibly and safely and ethically all yeah. these devices that they have the, the future is going to be much better but you know there's no doubt about it that the uh, you know these two things that you mentioned empathy and well-being and yes. health in general have been decline and they continue to decline unless we do something and that's why that's why this research that we do is not necessarily going to solve the problem but we're gonna we're gonna provide more kind of evidence research-based information and and facts to parents and teachers and everybody else to have a better conversations for um for you know raising these issues again fantastic Pazi. um it's always so wonderful to hear about the work that you're doing and as i mentioned before we hit record when i found out that you were coming to unsw i was so excited to to have someone with your experience working, uh, helping us uh, work on, uh, ask those big questions that need to be asked for education. So thank you so much for the uh, incredible work that you do. Um, just a final question, what um, advice would you give for someone who is wanting to embark in a career in education? Um, if you haven't decided yet, then my advice would be that go for it. It's yeah. a, it's a noble uh, profession, and it's you know it's 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 going to be one of those professions and jobs that uh, the the machines are, will continue to be very poor in uh, in doing. So it's very unlikely that the teachers will be replaced by machines anytime soon. Just you know, just think about any other profession. It's it's difficult to find a, a job now, a profession, a career that would not be under kind of a threat of being automatized or replaced by machines. So, so go for it. But then the other one is that, you know, this is something that I realized probably too late in my career, but they have been one of those, one of those things that have been the most powerful things uh, in my education career. The, one of them is, 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 is that, you know, teachers, if you're in education, if you particularly, if you teach, you, you are kind of, a, you, you grow into this model that you you know teachers are always right the teachers know everything uh, and teachers never make mis make mistakes <laughs> and that's the you know I, I remember that when i when i went to my first classroom i had this fear of you know uh, screwing up or not knowing something or making mistake and it was a horrible feeling and I, I was now I understand that I should have learned that already in the teacher training this the the, the power of being able to be wrong yeah, and and that's something that I am I'm, I'm telling all of you who are kind of a considering teaching or if you're in a in in this road already is that you know then the other one this is my last one here is the um. Again, you know, this this is something that took me a while to uh, to understand is that you know try to build trust in your in your own learners, your own students. You know, trust them more than you probably should in in terms of you know them being able to learn and figure out what you want them to do. And and that's something that's 
again should be part of the initial teacher training you know what you know what what is trust a powerful tool to empower and you know shift this kind of a responsibility of responsibility of teaching to the learner students to to be responsible learners mm -hmm. and so if you if you just are able to do, do those two things you know you know you know how to be wrong and and turn it into a kind of a powerful learning and how you can trust more your learners and you know let them figure out the way forward you're going to be uh, you, you're going to be a great teacher much earlier than would otherwise so that's my that's my advice for you fantastic Pazi. what a what a wonderful uh place to uh to end our conversation today i think it's so incredible to hear um just just the body of your work but also the someone who's asking some really tough questions about education but still uh seems incredibly passionate and optimistic about the future and the landscape of education, especially um, in Australia. So thank you so much for taking the time. Um, where can people find out more about your work or, or, or get in touch or, or, or follow some of the work that you're doing? Um, yeah, I have my own website where I, I keep, um, you know, mo most of the things I do, uh, it's easy to find just to type my name in a Google. There's only one one person with my name There's as not far a lot as I'm of aware. Yeah. <laughs> so so the, the Google or whatever uh, search yeah. engine you use, it's going to take you there. Um, yeah. So that's that's a that's a good place. And I also have I have actually two new books uh, being published. The other one is the Finnish Lessons 3.0. So it's a third edition of my my older book. So I invite you to take a look it's a completely updated uh, picture including how the how the Finnish schools and school system has been coping with the COVID uh, pandemic oh. that is a very different different way than here in Australia and then I have a new uh, another book coming with uh, I wrote it with uh, my my colleague Tim Tim Walker in who is a primary school teacher in Finland teaching in a Finnish oh. school the book is called in teachers we trust and it, it includes you know some of these some of these issues that we discussed earlier about the you know trusting uh, trusting schools and teachers and the teaching profession so take a look at those if you're interested in and you know you can always send me an email i'm happy to have a chat and i'll hear your stories what you're doing so thanks Fantastic. thanks for listening well, thank you so much Pazi. i really appreciate you taking the time and hopefully uh one day we can do a round two thank you so much thank you thanks matthew Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Art of Teaching podcast. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion today. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com and please remember to subscribe to future episodes. If you could also let me know what your thoughts about our discussions were today, rate and review the episode on iTunes and share the resource with anyone that you think might find it useful. Thank you for listening. Until next time.